Okay, so we're up to Perik Shishi, sixth Perik of Shmona Parkim. And again, I'm, gonna, I'm using the one that's in the back of like the Talmud Bavli, which is the Ibn Tibon translation. And so if it's not exactly what you have in front of you, sometimes that could be the case. Um, but it's a very interesting Perik because uh, the last Perik talked about she, that uh, he ended with the uh, statement of Chazal that he said was amazing and incredible, which is, um, right? He get, there's more. There's more. He's more. Uh, he spends more time expressing how effusive, you know, effusively expressing how excited he is about the phrase than actually saying what the phrase is. Because he says, you know, Chazal say this in very few words, and uh, you know, they they most perfectly capture the idea that so many books have been written on, and they're able to say it in a few words. Which he said basically means calibrating all of your actions with your purpose, your ultimate purpose being Yediat Hashem, and that's uh, that's the goal, and that will lead a person to refine their their behaviors and really. Um, Trim down a lot of their involvement in things that doesn't lead to that don't lead to avodat uh, Hashem. Now, um, so the perek shishi beefresh asher ben achasida meule uven hakovesh et yitzrov amoshel ben avshol. That's what it says in the title. The difference between somebody who is a true pious person and somebody who conquers their yitzara. Okay, amrav philosophy. The philosopher says hamoshel ben avshol. They said that a person can, there are two types of people. There's a person who, uh, who controls himself, basically, uh, one person is Moshe bin Afsho. That means he, he has he has self control, and really he desires to do things that are bad, and he yearns for them. Uh, and uh, and but he he controls his uh, desires and his uh, his uh, uh, yearnings, and instead, uh, and his actions basically contradict what his ultimate desire would be. He feels pain in doing it. He does the right thing, but he feels pain in it. It reminds me of uh, like um, the, the famous, uh, you know, the founder of Alcoholics Anonymous was this guy named Bill W. So if you're ever in like a hotel or on a cruise or something, and it says that at five o'clock today in the conference room, there's a meeting of the friends of Bill W., right? The friends of Bill W. are the people who are in uh, Alcoholics Anonymous. So they said about him that even until his last day on his deathbed, he was still asking, please bring me a drink. You know, he was asking them to, he, he, he fought every single day against his uh, desire for alcohol. So he, he never changed his desires. He still had the, he still had the yearning for it. He just mastered his, he, he became a kovesh at Yitzrol, basically. <coughs> and that's, that's what he's saying. But a chassid, his actions go in accordance with his desire. And when he does what is good, he desires it and he's happy with it. And all of the philosophers agree that this is a superior person. 
The person who loves to do the good is better. Uh, they said that, look, a person who masters his desires and overcomes them is good in, in, in many ways. You know, they, is, is like a chassid in, in many ways, uh, but he's at a lower level. So even, so meaning you have to give him credit for the fact that he does the right thing in the end, right? But he's, uh, but he's, in, but he's conflicted inside. So he's not, it's like a person who begrudgingly does the good action. Okay? He does it, but it's against his natural inclination. Instead of changing his inclination to wanting what's good. Like if a person trains themselves never to drink soda. I haven't, I don't think I have drunk soda in so many years that now if I even taste it, it I, I, I don't like it. Because I accustom myself not to drinking like in such intensely sweet things. So then you end up sort of like becoming, developing like a dislike for it. it go, you, you don't enjoy it, right? If you start to drink it again and do it again, or if a person starts smoking, it's really disgusting in the beginning, but then they, over, they become addicted to it and then they love doing it. You know, so it's a, it's a once you change your habit, you also change what you like and you, you're drawn towards a certain thing, whether good or bad, you're drawn towards it. Right? So, um, and that the soul of the wicked desires evil. Similarly, Shlomo Melech said regarding the joy of the pious person in good actions and someone who's not a tzaddik, how they are pained in good actions. It's joy for the tzaddik to do. Judge justice, but it's distasteful for the uh, for the person who uh, uh, who does wicked wicked things. So these ideas of the prophets, he calls Shlomo Melech, meaning from the from the Nach, uh, accord with uh, with what the philosophers say. I, I thought of other ones, you know, like uh, uh, there 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 are many in Tehillim also. Right? Oavei Hashem Sin Ura. You know, you have many things like that. You know? Um, the, a lot of times it talks about the Simchav, the Tzaddik, and the, uh, you know, in doing good in Tehillim. It's a very common theme also. So, uh, and how they hate evil. And they love good. Right? So it says this seems to fit with, uh, this seems to be a, a commonality between what the philosophers say and what Chazal, uh, or what the Tanakh says. Um, but then we come to the words of the rabbis and it becomes a little confusing. And up till now we saw that the rabbis not only have ideas that seem to overlap and fit well with the words of the philosophers, but they even said it better sometimes, right? Like, uh, like you said before, now it seems like we have a problem. Because It sounds like a person who wants to do evil is more perfect and greater. Uh, more than the person who doesn't desire them and doesn't have any pain in uh, leaving them. 
עד שאמרו שכל אשר יהיה אדם יותר חשוב ויותר שלם, תהיה יותר תשוקתו לעבירות. To the point that they said that a person is greater and more perfect, he'll desire the עבירות more, ויצטערו בהנחתם יותר גדול, and his pain in letting it go will be greater. That's exactly the opposite of what the philosopher said. ואביו זה הדברים, ואמרו, כל הגדול מחברו יצרו גדול ממנו. Like they said, anyone who's greater than his friend, his Yetzirah is also greater. Goes together. Not enough that they say that. Ad Shamru, They said that the greater the, the pain that you experience in controlling yourself, uh, the, greater the, uh, the greater the reward. Like it says in Pirkei Avot. According to the pain is the reward. They told the person he should want the sins. This is from, uh, this appears in, uh, in Masechet Nedarim, I'm pretty sure, in, in, our, in Talmud Bavli, but here it cites it as Torah Kohanim. But it says, he should say, That a person shouldn't say by nature, I don't like this sin. Right? Even though the, meaning I wouldn't have, I wouldn't eat shrimp anyway if it was kosher because it's so disgusting. It looks like a bug and, you know, it's slimy and this, or pork, pigs are gross. I would never want to eat bacon even if it's, you know, even if it wasn't prohibited so, so, and so on. Sometimes people will say that. This is what they said. A person shouldn't say, I don't want to eat meat and milk. I don't want to eat, uh, I don't want to wear shatnez. I don't want to have relations with a prohibited uh, person. Rather, I do want it. But what can I do if my father in heaven decreed that I can't do it? So he's going to tell us why that isn't really a contradiction. So on the surface, what is the contradiction? Whether it's a higher level to have a desire for the negative or is that a lower level? Right. Because he's saying before that if a person desires the wrong things, it's actually a cholia nefesh. Right, he said before that if you want something that's the, the sick person tastes the bitter as sweet and the sweet as bitter, right? He's saying that it's really actually a disorder of the personality to want the wrong things. And when the person is a tzaddik and they're happy, they're living in accordance with, uh, with, the, with what is good and they have that balance and they're, they're desiring the good things. They're happy in doing the good things. So a person is disordered. They're dysfunctional. You're, say, you're saying that the chazal are telling you to be a dysfunctional... And even the Tanakh says, Right? That uh, the tzaddikim are happy in the uh, in doing good, so uh, so why is it that the chazal would come and say no? It's better to have a disordered personality and be in conflict and have this desire to do wrong, but force yourself to do right. What kind of a thing is that? So the person should live in an eternal state of disorder and uh, and dissatisfaction with themselves. They're, meaning they're in conflict all the time. They're not living, in, they're not living happily. They're constantly trying to fight against uh, a Yetzirah. That sounds like a, uh, the contrary to what we're saying here, which is that a healthy person would be, who loves God, has Avat Hashem, loves also the good, will want the good, 
naturally and won't be in a conflict with themselves all the time. Right? So, uh, so the question is, why is that? Why, why do Chazal uh, uh, contradict the philosophers and tell you that you should be in a psychologically disordered state? That's, that's really what the, what, uh, to put it in a simple, how can you recommend being sick? We, we just built all of this and he showed many statements of Chazal that seem to support the idea that what is healthy and what is good uh, is, the, uh, is when we are habituated to and we're living in accordance with the right purpose and that it comes naturally at a certain point. We, 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 it becomes our uh, MO to do that and our, our response, we train ourselves to do that. So then how all of a sudden can he say that we should be in conflict? Okay, it's not true that it's a contradiction. They're both true. There's no machloka between them at all. This is the, you know, see, if you, if you learn, most of the time the Farshim are trying to explain the, there's no contradiction between these two psukim, or there's no contradiction between these two uh, gemarot, or there's no contradiction between these two halachot, but he's just dealing with a contradiction and a machloket between the philosophers and the rabbis. So, you know, there's really no machloket between them at all. Because the things that are evil that the philosophers are talking about, that they say that a person who desires certain things, uh, but he has to suppress the desire, is inferior to the person who desires the good. Okay? That's talking about things that are that are uh, understood by everybody to be bad. Well, explain what, we have to understand what difference does that, what difference does that make? Who cares whether it's understood by everyone to be bad? We'll get that in a second. Like murder, uh, murder, stealing, robbery, is like uh, cheating people or taking advantage of them, uh, let's say financially. It can also be also when you uh, hurt somebody uh, with words. Harming people who didn't hurt you. Uh, David Melech talks about that also in Tilim a lot. I didn't, I never, uh, uh, I never mistreated somebody who treated me well. Right? It's considered to be intuitively. We know that that's wrong. Disrespecting parents. Now, right? So, uh, uh, so he's saying like, if a person walks into the convenience store and he's constantly kovish at Yitzroel not to steal a candy bar off of the shelf, that is not what the rabbis are talking about. Meaning the philosophers are talking about that, that every time you go in, you have to resist grabbing a candy bar off the shelf. Or Bill W., every time he sees, you know, every day he has to fight against excess drinking. You know, that's something that everyone knows is a, an unhealthy thing, excess drinking, right? Or so it would seem, right? Like, these are like the mitzvot that the rabbi said that even if they weren't written in the Torah, they would be, um, it would be, they, w- they should have been, meaning we would have, we would have expected them to be even without reading them in the Torah. So to understand what that means, you might already know, but I guess for the sake of posterity, since we're recording it, what is he talking about? Some of the early rabbis, um, or he says in, in the parentheses, Chachamenu Achronim, which, which is the text that's correct. It depends on your point of reference. He's talking about, the, he's mainly talking about Sadia Gaon, actually, um, that uh, he doesn't like to mention his name in any way negatively because he really respected him a lot. But what happened was that there's a, uh, there's a, there was a group of philosophers that, that uh, that the the Rambam talks about a lot in Moreno Vuchim, 
that believed in the Kalam, right? Which these were the Arabic philosophers, the Mutakalamim. He talks about them, right, in many places. So those guys, they're called Midabrim because uh, because that the, because in Arabic that's what that word Kalam means speech. And the name for the philosophers, the Mutakalamim, means people who speak, talkers. Okay. So, uh, so he's saying that those who were influenced by the kalam, basically, by the Arabic philosophy that was non-Aristotelian Arabic philosophy, and that the Rambam sp- spends a lot of, uh, uh, of the Moran of Uchim, especially in book two, uh, discussing their ideas and refuting their ideas um, in the Moran of Uchim. So he says those who were sick with the illness of the, of the kalam, basically, he's sort of like saying the people who are misguided and had the you know the the and followed this this uh, philo- philosophical tradition. They called them mitzvot sichliot. Now, in addition to the fact that I know that Saadia Gaon was influenced by the Kalam, or you know, I, I hate to say influenced because I don't think he wasn't an independent thinker and he was just a passively influenced. But meaning that he studied the Kalam and, and adopted ideas from from the Kalam. So he. Um, he uh, also refers to those mitzvot as mitzvot sichliot. So we know that that's what the Rambam is talking about. He's talking about Sadia Gaon and people in that category. Um, it doesn't have a footnote here to say that. I'm just saying that from what seems to be the case. So he's saying that he called them mitzvot sichliot. In other words, he called, if, you, if you've ever learned Emunot uh, Vedeot uh, of Sadia Gaon, did you ever look into that book? It's a very, very important book of Machshevet Yisrael, uh, preceded the Rambam. Uh, it's it's uh, it's usually called Sefer Emunot V'Deot, even though it's not really the full name of it. It's also was written originally in Arabic, and he distinguishes between mitzvot sichliot and mitzvot shimiot, the mitzvot that we heard from tradition versus the mitzvot of sechel, meaning the mitzvot that are uh, that are ones that anybody would know, that any society would have, like don't kill, don't steal, don't cheat people, and so on and so forth. Okay. So he says they call the mitzvot asichliot v'entzavek shanefesh asher tichsof ledavar meem v'tishtotek elav sheichasera. There's no question that if your soul is yearning to steal every second or kill or cheat people or take revenge or, or harm people that have not harmed you, that's a disordered soul. There's something wrong with you, so to speak. Right? There's something wrong with you. Uh, are you? Do you want to say something? Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, go ahead. You don't have to raise your hand. This is not. You know. Yeah. Uh, don't we even think that there are some uh, values? Hear a lot of the, the argument that uh, popular atheists, pronounced atheists, make is that what is the uh, objective source for values in society? It's the collection of the values of the people. Uh, if, uh, if it's the collective moral is that you know, s- certain sexual improprieties are. Uh, wrong, that becomes wrong. Or among the pre the pre Islamic uh, Muslims, 
Actually, that was one of the that was one of the things that um, one of the things that Muhammad did that was actually uh, that uh, that was a sh- that was considered a, a big uh, reform that they used to expose the female infants because they didn't want girls, and uh, and he he abolished that obviously from uh, based on religious reasons. So uh, you know. Yeah, I mean, you're right. Let's, that's actually, I think, going to become clear as we go to the full answer. Well, what you're asking, I think, will we'll, we'll tie into the full answer. So it's a good question. It's a, it's a question that needs to be answered. What does it mean, sikhliot? So he says, because he calls them sikhliot, which would imply that they come from the sechel, but he also calls them mefursamot, which implies that they come from haskama, basically, that they're just things that people all agree upon. It's agreed upon in society. That seems to, all, to, to point more to what you're saying about the atheists and so on. The, part, the question is, you know, is there, let, is there an objective uh, uh, source for those kinds of moral uh, principles? And if so, what, what could it be, right? That's, or do we say that, no, it's just a matter of uh, convention, and, uh, which is what they're saying. It's a matter of convention, and it's really irrelevant. Although there are some atheists that will argue that, no, we're not, that moral, you don't have to be a moral relativist if you're an atheist. There could still be some objective morals. It's just that the source is something other than uh, something other than God, obviously. Correct. Okay. Well, and and I think there's I think there's something to be said for that. Actually, I know that's prob- even though I'm very much not an atheist and I actually have very little regard for people who are. Um, I uh, I happen to think it's like one of the most ignorant beliefs a person can have and most of the time when I hear someone's an atheist I it affects the way that I examine their entire uh, intellectual work because I find that to be such a uh, I mean I try to give them the benefit of the doubt that maybe they were just rejecting Christianity and they threw the baby out with the bathwater but certain people's you know to me the idea that that the idea of atheism, not rejecting religion, because I can understand why they would come to that, but rejecting the idea that there's a source of the universe and of the order of the universe seems to me a very, an extremely superficial and extremely uninformed position. But I, uh, even so, I think that they can make the argument for there being some source for morality and ethics. It's just going to be different. But we're going to get to it. I think we're going to get to it. So, um, because keep in mind, I don't think the philosophers actually thought that God commanded any ethical behaviors. They just thought that, uh, they just thought that there were certain things that should or shouldn't be, right? So we have to understand why. But let's come back to that. It's important. But let's come back to it. Now, he says, so he makes this point. He says, When they said that the person who conquers the Yetzirah is greater and the person... It gets more reward for that. So, so he uses the language of Sadia Gaon here. The mitzvot shimiot, the things that we heard, the things from tradition, right? And this is the truth. Because if not for the Torah, these things would not be inherently bad, right? There's nothing, you wouldn't say, oh, that person who eats pork is a bad person. Why? If it didn't say in the Torah not to eat pork, would there be anything wrong with it? No. Right? If a non-Jew eats pork, is there anything wrong with it? Absolutely not. Nobody would ever say that there was. Notice that uh, religious Jews get very upset, let's say, about 
about laws related to abortion because that's murder. It's an issue of, of killing and so on and the debate around whether that's considered murder or not and so on. So they get upset because that's something that's a universal moral issue and not particular. But they wouldn't get upset that, they're, that pork is allowed in society or things. Here they get upset about things like that, that they, if people sell pork or, they, or they, things are opening on Shabbat and stuff like that, people get upset because it's a Jewish country. But in other, uh, in, you know, in America, or, or they would get upset about gay marriage, let's say, because that's the, the regulation of uh, certain sexual prohibitions also apply to non-Jews, so they get upset because they see that as a universal moral issue and therefore something that they should speak up against in, uh, in their society. Um, as opposed to uh, if there's a, if the fact that they sell shotnez in the store, nobody's getting upset about that, right? Now, or that or that McDonald's sells uh, meat and milk cheeseburgers, nobody gets upset about that because that's just uh, that's not something that they think is a universal moral principle that all human beings need to abstain from meat and milk. They just think that that's something for Jews, okay? Which is correct. Now. Um, uh, Therefore, the rabbis say you should leave your soul loving those things. Still yearn for those cheeseburgers. Don't, uh, the only thing that should prevent you from eating a cheeseburger is the Torah. It shouldn't be because you don't like cheeseburgers. I'm using that because probably of all the non-kosher things, it looks the best. You know? Uh, a lot of the other non-kosher things don't, don't necessarily appeal. And look at how wise they are by the examples they chose. This is very sharp, actually. What the Rambam points out is a very sharp point. Look at the examples that they chose in that statement of Rabban Shimon ben Gamliel because they said right? they didn't say a person should say I don't want to kill or I, right? or I don't want to steal or I don't want to lie. Meaning when they used the example of what you shouldn't say they didn't say that you should you should naturally say, I want to kill, and I want to lie, and I want to steal, but the Torah told me not to. They didn't give those examples. What did they say? They didn't use the example of, like, mitzvot ben adam basically. They didn't use that. What did they say? They brought only traditional mitzvot, so to speak. Mitzvot that we know from revelation, not mitzvot that we know from society, such as basar bechalav, udvishat shatnez, va'arayot. Even the sexual prohibitions, interestingly, he puts those with mitzvot shimiot, which is, which is interesting, right? Now, even though some of them, it would seem, are uh, like, such, like adultery, for example, and things like that, I think, are different. But he's talking about arayot, which one of the remarkable things is that all of the... Today, people think that, um, oh, intuitively, I know that certain sexual relationships are, are abhorrent, but none of the Chachamim actually thought that. They all said, what's the reason why Arayot are prohibited and came up with all kinds of, not really about adultery, because that seems to be a matter of uh, a contract and a, an agreement and a, uh, you know, between people. Meaning it has more to do with respecting the rights of, in marriage, that you commit to something in marriage. It's been Adam l'chavero almost. You know, there's an element of ben Adam l'chavero in in ni'uf, let's say, particularly in adultery, because uh, the husband and the wife, they have a relationship and they have a commitment, right? Whereas other arayot, 
the rabbis are asking why, why is it prohibited? So the Ramban has an elaborate thing, more, more based on Kabbalah actually. The Rambam, uh, the Ibn Ezra, they all explain why, why. Why is it prohibited? Which is interesting. They don't take it for granted. They don't say, well, it's obvious why these, why these arayot should be prohibited. Interesting. Anyway. Uh, okay. This is what's called chukim, basically, right? Chukot, chukim. That the chukim that I established, that I engraved, I established for you, I legislated for you, you're not allowed to question them. And the idolaters reject them and critique them. And this is where the Satan, meaning the Yitzhahara, makes fun of them. It also mentions Basar Bukhalav in other places too. This is what somebody like mitzvot. Uh, 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 those that Sadia Gaon and his group would call Sikhliot, the rational mitzvot, the mitzvot that are self evident, they are called mitzvot as opposed to chukim. This is an amazing chidush. The difference between chukim and regular mitzvot is an amazing chidush, amazing novel insight. So he says that's the main point of this parak. Okay, so what is the answer? <laughs> well, what's the answer? So, uh, so, 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 so it's like why is that? He doesn't. There's something that's missing from the. Uh, I feel like from this, or maybe it's implicit and not made explicit by the Rambam. What is exactly the answer here? So, so does that mean that eating pork is good, but I'm not allowed to do it? Like, what, what, what? Which one? I have a different breakup of lines, so I'm not sure what lines you see. Which one, starting from where? Right, right, right. That's that's not sichliot. Sichliot are the other ones. That's the shimiot. He calls it. Right, the chukim. Basically, we call them chukim in our language, like in a common, commonly called chukim. Yeah. He's saying that he's saying chukim and shimiot are the same. Yeah. He said this is what we call chukim. Yeah. Those are the classic ones. Yeah. But all of them are chukim, really. Right? So he's saying that that's why Rabban Shemab Gabriel doesn't bring us an example. Uh, I really would love to kill somebody, but the Torah tells me not to. Because he says that's, that's not normal. <laughs> Basically. A person who says, I, every time I walk down the street, I really am about to kill that guy, but the Torah says I can, so I'm just not going to. But really, I would, I would love to. That person is, is a psychopath. I mean, the difference between a psychopath and that person is that that person is restraining himself, but they're pretty, but they're pretty close. 
you know? Um, so the question is, what is really the core distinction here? Okay, he's giving, a, he's giving a very convincing explanation, meaning it does seem indeed that that's what the rabbis are talking about. Now, there is, in mine I have Hagaot Yavetz on the side from Harav uh, Yaakov Emden, and I saw, I just quickly looked at it, and he says, you know, I don't think that's true. I think that even in the areas of the, of the, of the Sikhriot, it's good for people to, people should only follow them because Hashem said. But that's not what the, he's saying, uh, he, he disagrees with the philosophers altogether. That's what Rabbi Yaakov Emden says. He thinks that he doesn't like the. He doesn't think that the Rambam is right in trying to uh, trying to reconcile. He thinks it's two totally different systems, and that even when you don't kill somebody, it should only be uh, because Hashem said. But let's just go to the very very basic question like this, that Jordan kind of pointed to before. What is what are the mitzvot asichliot? What does it mean mitzvot asichliot? Meaning. Certain things I could figure out They're all intelligent mitzvot right? So it doesn't mean some are understood by the sechel And some are not He's saying things that would have been written Even if they weren't written in the Torah We would have come up with them anyway right? They're called mifursamot Everybody knows They're well known They're conventionally known As, as good or bad So what would, you, what would you say What are those kind of mitzvot How would you describe them Exactly. That's exactly right. Right. In other words, everybody knows, even if you're in a materialistic framework, you have to recognize that there's certain activities, actions, or behaviors that if they're tolerated would destroy the society itself. Right. Everybody would need to know that. Even the people in the times of Abraham, uh, even the people who lived in pagan times understood that you, even Hammurabi or whatever, understood that, uh, that uh, you know, they used to say that Amraphel, the king that's mentioned in the, it was Hammurabi. I don't think that they think that anymore. But, um, but yeah, I, 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 they used to think that, but I think that was, that was rejected a while ago. But they, but either way, um, it's not a, um, it's something that there's no such thing as a society in history that thought that it was okay to kill. It's, there, there, there never was. It's called before Samot. Why? Not because they're some genius philosopher, like you said, not because some philosopher, some, you know, Aristotle came and told them, I have an amazing chidush, we shouldn't kill each other. It was because it's impossible for society sur- to survive in, in, a, in, a, in a conditions where people kill each other or people violate one another's property rights and steal or where people take each other's wives or whatever it is. And that was the difference between pre-Mabul and post-Mabul, essentially. Pre-Mabul is talking about a time where strong dominated the weak. There was a, there was, it was purely every man for himself and there was no sense of any kind of law or order. After the times of Noah, society and civilization emerged. That's what the Torah describes, really, right? And society and civilization are characterized by what? By the seven mitzvot of Bnei Noach, which are, uh, you know, which basically um, 
lay out what's necessary for a society to function materially, not to disintegrate into chaos, basically. It doesn't bring the society to any higher purpose necessarily, but it, it doesn't allow society to disintegrate into anarchy, chaos, and, and to be destroyed, which is what happened in... There was not a level of civilization that could even allow for human beings to develop or to be creative or to, you know, to understand or to progress because it was complete chaos. When you live in a society that has law and order, 99.9% of the people in that society are not making any progress spiritually, intellectually, they're not contributing anything to the future of humanity, they're doing very little. However, the framework of a society that, where people don't kill and steal is what allows that 0.1% to do something meaningful. And not, you know, and, 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 and allows humanity to progress. So the, that's, that's, and, and the, the one thing, that, and I think that's where the atheists can come along and say, look, they're more like Hobbesians, actually. I don't know if you've ever read uh, any Hobbes, but whatever, the idea of like sort of a social contract or, what, or how, you know, however you want to describe it, but the idea that, you know, there's a whole question of whether like a big machloket between the philosophers, uh, especially the early philosophers who saw society and family as being natural, natural entities, that it's natural for individuals to live in families and for families to live in societies. That's natural. Meaning that that's where you would evolve to. You would evolve to a cooperative. Just like within the family, there's a certain cooperative, what we call shituf pe'ula in Hebrew. You know, people are joining together for a common purpose in a family. So in a, in a society, it's the same thing. So you don't do everything in your house. You have a shoemaker who fixes shoes and you have a butcher who does this and you have a baker that does that. And everybody kind of takes their part in keeping a society running. Just like in a family, people have different roles and different responsibilities, different chores, whatever that they do, they, they fulfill. So in the society, it's the same thing. So the, 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 the Greek philosophers saw the, the family and, the, and society or the village or whatever as a natural outgrowth of, uh, of human uh, uh, you know, existence, not as an artificial thing. Hobbes and a lot of later philosophers saw it as an artificial thing that basically at a certain point people were like, look, we could do this a lot better if we just stopped killing each other. Let's make an agreement that I'll suppress some of my desire for power and control and material wealth and you'll suppress some of your desire for power, control and enjoyment and pleasure and material wealth. And that way, because we each restrain ourselves, we can get more because we will have the security of not being at war with each other and we'll, we'll be able to cooperate and, and it'll be better for everybody. Um, I'm, that is the most simplistic. Uh, uh, and I mean, obviously the books written on this are a lot longer and more detailed and complex than I've just told you, but that, that's basically a big question. Was there actually a social contract, meaning that people entered into society as a choice because they realized it was a better idea? Like the way people make treaties after, you know, or, you know, they, when they lay down arms and wars end among nations, the same thing happened among people, or that it naturally evolved into that. That's a big question. But the, but the point is that moral and ethical principles can be understood in a purely utilitarian way as what's necessary for society to function. And part of what Western society is going through now as it's purging the religious elements of its uh, moral and ethical uh, commitments and convictions, at least in the, you know, in the cosmopolitan areas where you guys live, maybe not in Tennessee and Kentucky, 
in other places where they're purging the religious elements from it. So what's coming out is, well, what, what's left to, uh, uh, to, to hold the fabric of, uh, of morality together? It's going to be a certain practical consensus that, look, of course, it's going to be based on, at the end of the day, certain unstated or assumed values, such as there is a good in human existence. It is good for humans to exist and thrive. How do I know that? I'm just using it as my premise because if I don't have that premise, then I don't have anything. Okay? So that's the premise of the atheist. It is good for civilization to thrive. It's good for humans to live and thrive. And therefore, if certain uh, elements need to be in place, laws and rules need to be in place in order to prevent the disintegration of civilization, these are the ones we should have. And that's understood by a rational person that you, that you restrain your instincts in order to allow the system as a whole to continue to exist. That, that's, that's, that's how they would... But their given is the given of that society existing is good. Can they prove that? No, they can't prove that because there's no measure of good that, would, you know, that they can use. But that's what they think. The, the, the mitzvot of B'nai Noach, even though they aren't, in, they're not designed to bring about deep intellectual understanding, they're designed to keep society in order, but they do have the negation of Avodah Zorah as one of their uh, points, because the idea is that um, idolatry, first of all, is a corrupting influence on, uh, on society, which is something that's underappreciated. But it's, it's a corrupting influence. But also that the idea that the mitzvot of B'nai Noach, that what makes society good is that God wills society to exist. Meaning that, that, that that's, part, that's part of the, that's what the good is. In other words, the real difference between the atheist and the, B'nai, and the Ben Noach is not what they think the laws of society are for. Because the laws of society are in order to keep society functioning and to keep the... Uh, and, and in the same way that a person who wants things that are bad for him and doesn't want things that are good for him is disordered, a person who wants things that would tear the fabric of society apart um, for selfish reasons, which they are a part of that very society, um, that would destroy the society, that person's also disordered. In other words, if you look at yourself as not just your own body and your own body and soul, but as part of a, a collective, so if you desire things that would rip that apart, you're also ripping yourself apart and destroying yourself. So that's the, that's the, uh, the idea of the mefursamot, that it's well-known, meaning it's something that is in, instilled in people. And I think that even, you know, even Kibur Ava'im, even though maybe the form that Kibur Ava'im takes in today's society is not what it once was, obviously. You know, respect for elders is, uh, is not what it once was. It was always a struggle between the younger generation and the older generation. You can read these funny things from 300 years ago. It's like, you know, kids today, they're not like they once were. And then it says at the bottom, it was like written in 1700s, you know? You know, it's like, uh, when are my day, they used to respect. And like, they've always been saying that, basically, that, that, that the previous generation was more. So there was always a struggle between the youth and the... Uh, it even says in the Torah, you know, uh, uh, that you know that the uh, that the the people who come to destroy the Beit Hamikdash will be people who uh, uh, that, that don't honor elders, that are disrespectful of elders, and so, and things like that. But with 
in there's a it's considered a moral flaw not to respect elders and I th- but I think even in our society if you see an elderly person people get up for them on, and let them sit on the uh, on the bus people might let them pass on the line people, you know there is built into the society a respect for elders it might not always be observed exactly as it should be and sometimes people violate it but not you know not any more than they violate cheating people in business or any of the other uh, things that they do meaning it's something that everybody kind of agrees yeah we have to care about our elders they get special discounts they get special consideration they give you know uh, they people give them more time they're more patient with the older people that moves more slowly i think that it's uh, it is something that we um, and the idea that if somebody's in a position of a teacher or a parent, you address them differently. 99% of people don't call their parents by their first names, even in America where they disrespect their parents a lot. They wouldn't call them, hey, Bob. You know, they, they, they call them by their, but, you know, da- dad or mom. They wouldn't, they wouldn't um, call them by their first name. There's some kind of a sense of, uh, of respect. So these, all these things, and, and again, that's important for the continuity of, continuity of society because there's an understanding that it's because the elders educate the youth and, you know, and, and, and that, that society is able to, uh, that they raise and educate the youth and that the youth um, accept their guidance and accept their direction that society continues and so on. So I think that's, the, that's what he's talking about in the Fursamot and that's why you'd be disordered. What about the Chukim? What are the Chukim? How are the Chukim different? Is the Rambam saying really it is good to eat pork? He obviously doesn't think that because he writes that the Chukim all have reasons and the reasons are good and the reasons are true and the reasons are, you know, so, so how could it be? In other words, what, the distinction is hard to understand because if you're going to hold like the Rambam everywhere else and certainly believe this when he wrote this too, that the, the chukim have reasons and the chukim have a purpose and the purpose is a good purpose. So why is it any different? Meaning why even make that distinction? Why not just say what is good is good and you should want it or you shouldn't want it? Why make a distinction between what is good and you, shouldn't, you should want it and what is good and you shouldn't want it? You should fight your yetzerah against it. You should build up a real strong desire for bacon and then not eat it. What's the difference? The, the, what we were before. And also, just also notice what Chazali quote that 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 the ovdeko chavim and the satan are against these mitzvot. Why? Why? What's the reason? You go ahead. Okay. So, what were you going to say? Let's see if it fits in. Okay, I lo- yeah, what you're saying is good, but let me, can I take it a step further than that? Oh, what do you want to say, Jordan? Go ahead. Uh, it could be also that the, the 
reality come to those conclusions? You would need to Right, so that part would explain, I guess, why the Ovdei Kochavim would be against it, what you're saying, right? Meaning because God is a pre... God is necessary to make it... You can come to certain conclusions without incorporating God into your life. Right. Right, I hear you. I think that's true too. I think both of you are saying correctly. I just want to take it one step further than that that I was thinking before when I was thinking about this parak because we were going to learn it. So I started to think about it last night. And I think there's a further step, you could further point of clarification that, um, that, the, that chukim are... Because so, we said before that the reason why mishpatim or mitzvot are self-evident, are mefursamot, is because they sustain the material welfare of humanity. And, and a person's psyche, the health of the psyche, is in desiring what is good in terms of the mind-body balance, um, like we said before, and what's functional and what's good, even in the framework of the material, is for that balance to be there the balance between the individuals within the individual and the balance within the individual, you know, between the individual and the other members of the collective of which they're actually a part, even though they're not a physical part, but they're a social part of that entity. The the chukim are different because the purpose of the chukim is to teach you ideas. The purpose of the chukim is to teach you certain, like you said, philosophical ideas or principles that go beyond the material. The reason why the chukim seem like chukim is because what they're teaching you are, is ideas that go beyond the material and practical interests of society and direct you towards something higher. So the idea, I think, is the Rambam is saying, if a person is just like, oh, I wouldn't want to eat pork anyway. I wouldn't really want to wear shatnez anyway. It's not my style. Okay? I wouldn't really want to do that anyway. So they're just reducing it to another material thing that you would choose or you wouldn't choose. Okay? They're not actually recognize they're not recognizing that it's something that points them to a different realm, to a realm of, of ideas and understanding that's beyond the material and the practical. There is zero practical benefit to not eating pork. That's what he's saying. There's zero benefit to society in not eating pork in the sense of benefit meaning a material benefit, a societal benefit, a psychological health benefit, or any of the kinds of benefits that are understood by a society that essentially is a materialistic society. But even if it believes in God, essentially it defines the good as the ability to pursue happiness, meaning psychological happiness and harmony with other people, right? That's, that's the idea of, the, of most uh, uh, societies. Now, a society that's based on chuchmah and desire to know God, so it has chukim because the chukim are institutions that point a person to something higher. If they just reduce that to, oh, actually, I'm happy to take a day off every week and not work. You know, it's really good for me. I, uh, you know, I, I like having a weekend and having a break. Or, uh, you know, I like, uh, I, I like not eating pork. It's gross. I, I don't want to eat shrimp and, you know, shotness. Is, is, uh, is the clothing is inferior quality, whatever. If you reduce it to some kind of a material, material functionality 
you know, that, as if it has some material functionality. So then you're losing the, pa- the fact that it's trying to teach you an idea beyond that. It's trying to teach you ideas and values and principles that are beyond the material. That's why it's a chok. And the reason why it's a chok really is because chok means that an authority established it, right? Chokim chakakti lecha. Why? Because if I'm, if something is, in, because in society, stealing, killing, and so on, the parameters of those uh, behaviors, what's right and wrong, are to a certain extent self-evident. Not totally from a legal perspective, because whether it be American law or lahavdil halacha, um, what, when you're culpable for murder, when you're not, when you're culpable for stealing, when you're not, and all these things are very complicated questions from the perspective of administering justice, okay? That's a different story. But from the perspective of right and wrong, it's very self-evident. But if God wants to teach you a certain idea about how you relate to the universe or how you should understand the universe, how you should relate to the creation, how you should, you know, and he decides that the way you should do it is through not wearing a certain type of clothing or through wearing a certain type of clothing or from not eating certain foods or to show you that eating has a purpose higher than just the satisfaction of an instinct and it serves a purpose in, in, of transforming your eating into a type of avodat Hashem and that's the idea of a chok, that would be unintelligible to a person living in a materialistic society, a practical type of society. It could only be intelligible to a person living in a society where knowledge of God and service of God is the ultimate purpose. Even then, would you be able to show why did God decide that shrimp, yet, shrimp no, but uh, chicken yes? Or you, know, you, you can have all kinds of theories about it, but at the end of the day, the reason why you accept it is it's a chok. This is how Hashem determined to teach you this, a certain idea. Okay? And, and, and so that's why it has an element of chok because it can't be explained in terms of, its, in terms of practical functionality. If something's explained in terms of pra- practical functionality, it's easier to be able to comprehend why the parameters are the way that they are. When something is a... Um, a fixed law that's intended to teach you something beyond practical functionality. So then the choice, you know, the authoritative choice is made by the Torah. So the fact that you like or you don't like it or you, you, you're attracted to it's better for a person to say, meaning you will learn more if you say, I really would love to eat all these foods. What is it trying to teach me that I can't eat these foods? I'm, you know, it's teaching me an idea that I, but the Torah is tell what it means. Hashem gazar alai doesn't mean like some simplistic thing of oh, I'm suffering so much when I don't eat pork, and Hashem's forcing me not to eat it. It doesn't mean you should have some weird, twisted thing like uh, like that. What it means is why do, it engages the mind. What it means, Hashem gazar alai, is that I'm not not eating this food just out of a habit. That's the danger. In other words, we get to the point where we just don't go to McDonald's. I mean, I actually do go to McDonald's. You guys don't, right? Um, I, I, I don't go to McDonald's just out of a habit. I don't go to certain places just out of a habit. And after a while, you're just like, oh, that's non-kosher. Ichs, you know, I don't want that non-kosher stuff, right? That's the attitude that, that we in- internalize, Right? So what ends up happening? You don't really think about why you're not eating those foods. You don't really think about what the purpose is. Now, when it comes to killing or stealing, it makes zero difference in terms of the, ben- the utility of not killing or stealing, whether you 
think about why you didn't steal the candy bar or you don't think about it. Because the practical effect is that you didn't steal and therefore society is functioning in a lovely way instead of a bad way. But it makes every difference if a person says, I, if a person just says, I don't need all these non-kosher things because it's gross and I take every Saturday off because it's relaxing and I don't wear shatnez because it bothers my skin and uh, so on and so forth. It makes every difference if they say that versus if they say, I would love to do it, but I have a philosophical reason why I don't do it. God's teaching me something by telling me not to do it. What can I learn from it? It's not coming from within me that I just don't feel like doing it. I don't like it because then I'm just reducing it to, it's the same thing as I always say, and, and, and just on the, on the Arayot thing, like, like I've said many times, the classic, the, the example that's the most salient for our time is like homosexuality. People will just be like, oh, it's gr- obviously it's prohibited because it's gross. But it's gross. Because most people, I wouldn't say all, but you know, most heterosexual people find it distasteful and it's a big turnoff, okay? They think it's disgusting. If that's the reason why, so then you're not going to learn anything. You see here that he puts arayot with the chukim. So then you won't even ask the question of why. What is it actually trying to teach you about marriage or teach you about sexuality? It's not saying don't want it. It's saying don't do it. So uh, what is it trying to teach me about sexuality? If I just go with my instinct of it's gross, so then I, don't, I learned absolutely nothing from that now. Whereas if I say, okay, it's, uh, I, I, you know, maybe it would be great. You know, the Greeks really liked being, you know, doing gay stuff. So uh, they didn't have a problem with it. So uh, why should I, uh, you know, why does the Torah tell me not to? So now I can start to think about it and, and learn something from it. I think that's what he's saying, Hashem gazar alai. You see? And there's, there's actually a really, really nice Rambam at the end of Hilchot Me'ilah, where he talks about Chukim. It's a random thing because it's in Hilchot Me'ilah, and most people don't learn Hilchot Me'ilah because it has to do with the Beta Mikdash and the thing. But he talks about Chukim there. And he says, He talks about how if you don't understand the reason behind mitzvot, you shouldn't take it lightly. You shouldn't look at it as an ordinary thing. You should realize it's very, it's very important. I'm skipping a little bit, but then he talks about chukim. He says that, uh, that a person, you shouldn't think that the chukim are pchutim min mishpatim, that they're less than the mishpatim. Ve'amishpatim ena mitzvot shetaman galui. Ve'tovat asiyatan ba'olam hazeh yedu'ah. He says the benefit of chukim, of, of mishpatim is obvious. Everybody knows it. Kigon isur gezel, shvichat damim, v'kibud av'em. Okay, this is, I'm reading from Hilchot Me'ilah. Ve'achukim ena mitzvot she'en tamam galui. The chukim, the reason is not obvious. Amru chachamim, chukim shechakakti lecha, this is from the Mishneh Torah. He's saying exactly what he says here, right? He's quoting the same things. Right? So he gives the similar examples. And then he says, David HaMelech was especially upset that the non-Jews and the, and the heretics challenged the chukim. The more they would criticize them, the more he would be attached to them. Okay? And then he says, all the korbanot are, are among the chukim. The fichach, this is very interesting. All of the korbanot are among the chukim. And then he says, as the last halachav, hilchot me'ilah, 
אמרו חכמים שאף על עבודת הקורבנות העולם עומד. Even, he adds something in the פרקי אבות, right? He says, על שלושה דברים העולם עומד, על התורה ועל העבודה, he says, אף, he says, אף, even, even on the קורבנות, שבעשיית החוקים והמשפטים זוכים הישרים לחיי העולם הבא. That through doing the חוקים and משפטים we get עולם הבא, והקדימה תורת ציוויה על החוקים, and the Torah puts the חוקים first, as it says, ושמרתם את חוקותיי ואת משפטיי אשר יעשה האדם וחי בהם. Right? So he's saying the chukim come first. Why? Not because the mishpatim, the mishpatim are more important, meaning they're first in practice. Without the mishpatim and the orderly society, you can't have chukim. But chukim are really where it's at because they point to what the purpose of it is, the, the immaterial purpose, the non-material, the metaphysical purpose of human existence and what you're really supposed to know and understand, that's from the chukim. So therefore, the, uh, the, that's why he's saying, if you just don't like pork, you're not learning anything from that. It's not actually pointing you away from the material. You reduced it to just another thing that either you're attracted to or not attracted to, okay? And that's okay in all things related to the material world, temperance, modesty, moderation in eating, in drinking, in everything else, all those things are good to have a balance and to want what is actually good and healthy for yourself and good and healthy for society. But when it comes to uh, things that are beyond the material, there it would be a disservice to the chukim for you to just happen to like them. Because then you, but when a person says, Hashem gazar alai, Right, that Hashem commanded me, so then it, the question becomes why? The question becomes what's the purpose? What is it teaching me? It's interesting though that he says that any, the greater the person, the greater the Yetzirah, right? Because the more the person, I think, that, see I used to think that what that meant was that, um, that just great people a lot of times have a very strong uh, libido. Which in a lot of cases when the Gemara brings that idea of kol she gadol mechavero yitzor gadol emenu, they usually bring it in that context. So that's what I thought. The Rambam here is bringing it in the context of all, uh, all things, right? Not just, in the, uh, not just in that area. So it seems like he's saying that because they recognize, you see that the Hamon Am, the common people, have managed to reduce the Chukim also into taboos, kind of, basically, like, oh, pork, I would never touch that, or the shrimp, you know, I would never, but the person who's released from that, right, the person who's released from that kind of thinking, of the taboo thinking, so now he's going to want those things from the physical standpoint, because he doesn't have the disgust factor, he doesn't have the factor of feeling a natural um, negative Uh, uh, you know, negative attitude towards those things because he'll realize that from an objective perspective, there's nothing not delicious about those things or not desirable about those things. From a physical perspective, from a psychological perspective, there's nothing wrong with it. So he's going to say that they're totally fine. So he's going to have more of an attraction to them from the physical perspective because he hasn't internalized a kind of a taboo, um, knee-jerk, disgust reaction to those things. It's, and this is what I had mentioned, I think, on the chat the other day about Bil'am, actually. That my thought about why Bil'am, why the, why the Chazal say that Bil'am was like in a relationship with his donkey and his donkey was actually secretly his girlfriend, you know, that says, because uh, she says, um, uh, because uh, the, the Chazal say that, oh, she, you know, he was with the donkey in day and night, you know, whatever. It's something... Uh, you know, that is distasteful to us. But what would the, what, what's the idea? The idea that I was suggesting is that 
like Diogenes in Greek times is the example of that, uh, that type of a thing that um, it was famous for basically saying all conventions are nonsense. All, all conventions are, all taboos are, are nonsense. What's wrong with, if, if I'm going to get sexual pleasure from, a, from a, a woman or from a donkey, what's the difference? A pleasure is pleasure, but what's the difference? And that's what most of the Greeks thought anyway. They had, you know, they were involved in uh, relationships with boys and I'm talking about the men with boys and the men with each other and they didn't care. So what's, what's the difference? So that, that was Bil'am's thing. Why should I follow these societal taboos? They're, they're just based in superstition and, 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 and silly uh, uh, backwards thinking. So he, he, was, he was very much, uh, he, he, he was a, somebody who was willing to violate the taboos. That's what they say about Diogenes. You know, he, was, he, com- he, lived in a, he walked around naked and lived in a bathtub and went to the bathroom in the middle of the street and didn't care. He's like, all of these things are conventions that are nonsense and they're the taboos of the society. And one time Alexander the Great met him and he said, Diogenes, what can I do for you? And he said, you can move out of the way, you're blocking my son. I'm, I'm sunbathing, you know? Like, meaning he had no regard for any, uh, any convention, including respecting some, you know, uh, uh, an emperor or whatever. The idea, and there's lots of funny quotes from him on that. Um, on that uh, he never wrote anything because that would, be, that would totally be a non-Diogenes thing to do. But there's a lot of stories about him and, uh, and he's an interesting person. But he's a good example of somebody who released himself totally from any kind of a uh, conventional restriction and just followed nature. And, uh, and his philosophy was that, yeah, being balanced and everything, he believed in that because that was for psychological health. But he, wouldn't, he didn't believe in the, in the extra taboos that society added. And that was what Bilam was like. If you release yourself from the taboos, and by the way, you know who else was like that? To a certain extent, it seems like Chazal portray the people of Sodom like that also. That the people of Sodom, they were very wicked towards God. So Rashi says they knew God and they, reject, and they rebelled against him. And... Um, and that's, that's because, I think, because Avram Avinu had an impact on the people of Sodom, that he taught them ideas and truths about the world, and they were able, therefore, to, instead of, um, ref- they, they basically realized that a lot of ethical and moral uh, uh, behaviors and, uh, and taboos and things like that were just created by, you know, by, based on faulty reasoning. They, they, didn't, they didn't have any real basis to them. And so therefore they, they said, what's wrong with uh, having a system in which outsiders are excluded and we, you know, and, and, and it's okay to be cruel and it's okay to be, uh, you know, to close our uh, doors to people who want our help. As long as we take care of each other, uh, you know, that's really the main purpose of, uh, of moral and ethical behavior in society. And therefore they, you know, they, they corrupted the ideas of Avraham Avinu. That's why they were so bad. They were so bad because they took an idea that could have been good and understanding of God and they made it into, they weaponized it to justify an, uh, a very evil uh, way of life. So uh, be that as it may, the point is, I think this is what the Rambam's basic distinction is. Um, actually, I didn't, it wasn't as clear to me until we were talking about it now. So, uh, you know, it's like I just thought about it a little bit uh, this morning when I got up and thought, uh, you know, and thought maybe that would, it would, it would shed some light, but always talking it out and it, it makes it clearer. Um, and this seems to be the, uh, the idea. I think it's very, it's very deep, actually. The Rambam says it's a chidush nifla. It's really a big uh, you know, there's a big difference between chukim and mishpatim, and that's why the idolaters can't have chukim. The nations of the world don't have chukim. They can only have mishpatim. Okay? Uh, can I just have one follow-up? Sure.
Sure. You can even have more than one for the same price. The sikhliot, right? Yeah, because to you, yeah. Right, because even the Rambam actually says when he talks about the mitzvot of Bnei Noach that he that only a, the person only gets sachar for following the mitzvot of Bnei Noach if he does it because God said so, which is interesting. I don't think he fully disagrees with that. Meaning, I think that it, it's just different. Meaning, what what I I think that what the Rambam would answer to like Rav Yaakov Emden's type of approach is that. Yes, it's true that God commanded us to have mishpatim. The mishpatim are also in the Torah. They're also among the Taryag mitzvot. Then a person has to fulfill the mitzvah of not stealing, not killing, not doing all these things because God commanded it. That's also true. The question is, does that mean psychologically, meaning I can psychologically not desire to steal and that comes from a natural innate intendency not to steal. That doesn't mean that the benefit of not stealing can't be something deeper than that intuitive level. Meaning, I can say, I don't steal the candy bar when I go into the convenience store. I didn't steal the candy bar. Why? Because uh, you, you're, you're raised with, and a society instills within you a sense that that's not the right thing to do. You don't do that, right? Now, there's a deeper reason. Why is it good for society to have order? Why is it good for civilization to, uh, uh, to not be chaotic? What is the ultimate purpose? And then that's where God comes in. Of course, God institutes mishpatim because he wants you to understand that mishpatim are valuable ultimately only because they create a framework in which human beings can reach God. That's the ultimate value of them. Okay, that is, the Rambam is not disagreeing, okay, that the ultimate value of those mishpatim, that's why he says in that, in that Hilchot Me'ilah, he says the Torah put the chukim before the mishpatim, but commanded us on both. Because that's why Ve'ele'a mishpatim asher tasim lifneem comes right after Ma'amad Sinai, and a lot of the mishpatim have in them references or remazim to Chukim, like why is it six years for the Eved if we followed by a seventh year that he goes free? You know, it's obviously relating to the idea of creation and Shabbat. So the, the, the Chukim and the Mishpatim are not a separate system. Mishpatim are creating a framework where the Chukim can achieve their purpose. What the Rambam is talking about here is what's the healthy attitude towards the Mishpatim? Do I therefore have to desire to kill the person? 
No, because there's a, there's a natural, psychologically healthy and socially healthy state where you don't actually want to do that. The question is, why is that ultimately good? That's a different story. It's ultimately good because the mishpatim enable us to fulfill the purpose that's expressed by the chukim. But the mishpatim themselves um, don't have to be something where we struggle to observe them, meaning where we're going against our natural inclination, because it's more natural and healthy, actually, for a person to want to live by the mishpatim, even as a material being, even as a, uh, a materialist or as a, as a utilitarian being, it's more healthy and it's better. Like if you read, for example, uh, I mention this book all the time, The Seven Habits of, health, uh, the seven habits of Highly Effective People, Right. He's talking about habits of, of thinking and acting that are practical. Now, he actually says in the beginning, he was like a Mormon, I think, or something. He was religious, the guy who wrote the book. He, said, I be- he says, if you live in accordance with certain principles, these principles are in the universe. They're in creation. If you live in accordance with them, you will be successful. If you live against them, you will not be successful ultimately. That's what he says in the beginning. He says, I believe these principles were created by God. But you don't have to believe that to recognize that they're real principles. And if you live in accordance with them, they will lead to success. And if you work against them, ultimately they will go against, you, you will not succeed. He, but it's the same thing here. The mishpatim are principles for, society, for the individual and society that are healthy and adaptive on a practical level. Whatever you believe the reason is for having them, they are, you know, they're self-evidently good to people because they fit into the practical ends that, and objectives that people immediately identify with and immediately desire. That's why they, that's why they are accepted and acknowledged um, uh, in all societies. Uh, does that mean that, um, that we don't believe they have a higher purpose? They do have a higher purpose, but you don't need the higher purpose in order for them to have meaning. Whereas in the realm of the chukim, they wouldn't have any meaning at all without the higher purpose. The higher purpose is the only reason they exist. They don't serve any function be, uh, other than that. The mishpatim serve a function independently of chukim, and that's why they can be understood independently, and that's why the psychological attitude towards them can be different. Now, what, uh, what um, I don't think that you necessarily have to, you know, Harav Emden is, is contradicting the Rambam and saying the Rambam is disagreeing. I'm not so sure there really is a disagreement. I think if the two of them sat down and talked about it, they might, maybe they did in, in, in Olam HaEmet, in the Shiva Shel Mala, they had the discussion. I don't know. But I think that the, uh, the, um, uh, the, the Rambam would probably say to him, look, I'm not saying you shouldn't keep the Mishpatim because God commanded it. I'm just saying that on a psychological level, a person who wants to violate the Mishpatim has a more fundamental flaw because they're not even living in accordance with what's healthy for their, for their own psyche and for society. That's, that's all I'm saying. I'm not saying that the real purpose for it is not to fulfill the will of God. Of course it is. You know, that's, that's, that's it. Okay? This was nice. It's a great parak. It's a lot to think about here. No, I got, usually when, on these days I go to the later minyan and have like another hour and a half. I hear you, yeah. Uh, discussing uh, the common uh, the arguments, the common arguments of the atheist creatures. Uh, there's, one, there's one argument, the only argument that I've ever, uh, never found to, I have been able to refute it on my own. Uh, and I don't know if I should find my inability to refute it, but to, you know, 
that's and how do you interpret it going forward? It's that uh, much of the way we think and the value system to which we subscribe, and there we discuss different religions, uh, it is usually a byproduct of where you were born, the family structure, the community, the region, mm -hmm. the time period that you grew up in. If you were born 2,000 years ago, you would believe in uh, maybe some family believed in a polytheistic uh, whatever, whatever. Uh, the Bible Belt, if you are a Christian, if you grew up in, in Tibet, you subscribe to Buddhism or whatever. Different religion. Right, so therefore? The argument seeks to devalue, delegitimize uh, the religious person's conviction by saying, you just think that way because you were born into the situation you were born. Mm -hmm. uh, and I have never been able to, you know, on my own, not that I debate atheists, um, in very, uh, in very uh, simple terms, it's also only because you grew up in this society and in this time that you believe in the theory of relativity, or that the Earth is round, or that you believe that the Earth goes around the Sun, or that the universe is expanding or in DNA, or in any other kind of things that 100 years ago or 200 years ago or 500 years ago, you wouldn't have believed in. Now, you haven't done, I don't think you have done, direct research to validate any of those things and probably haven't studied, and neither have I, right? But yet we take them as for granted because we live in the society that we live in. Or the fact that, let's say, the color of your skin doesn't de determine your value as a human. Right? Everyone would agree with that nowadays, but a hundred years ago, there were, you know, in, uh, particularly in the US, there were Supreme Court justices writing how black people are only one half of a person or whatever, you know, things like that that are biz bizarre to us today. Now, that's only because of the society in which you live. So sometimes the society in which you live and the accident of birth is, happens to put you in a better position that you have truths that people who are born in other circumstances didn't have. It's just as much of an error to believe in something just because you were born into it than it is to not believe it just because you were born into it. They're both the same error. The fact that you were born into it doesn't make it true, but it doesn't make it not true. It makes it something that you have to think about and consider and critically evaluate and determine if it's correct or not. So it's so in if everyone deter, you know examines their convictions and realizes that yeah there are certain things I was raised with certain beliefs that I've discarded you've discarded certain Jewish beliefs maybe that you learned from early teachers that taught you and um, and or evolved in your understanding um, you were told things by your parents you were told things by your teachers even in other disciplines I'm sure you learned history one way and you probably learned that a lot of the things you learned in school were wrong and things like that. A lot of us are exposed to different ideas and different uh, beliefs and are taught them by an authority at an early age. And we all have the responsibility to evaluate and, 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 and make a decision about whether it's true or false. A per most people, it's true, function on autopilot and they function on autopilot and they never question those convictions. But the fact that you were born into believing the world is round doesn't mean it's not. so far 
they, they take the point of the, the arguments from the extreme, which I don't accept, because it loses some of its, of its credibility. But they say that, you know, I'm going to use their, their words, uh, your, your religion is, is, you view it, whoever the listener is, is correct to the exclusion of all other religions. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you view your, your perception of God, your understanding of God is the right one, and the other 99% or 90% or 70% of the world, they all have it wrong. The only reason you're right is because of you were born into that. Right. Well, the last step is where it really becomes a mistake. Because you can, you could say, yeah, I, first of all, it, I don't think that that's always true. Because let's say, for instance, you're talking to a Muslim or something like that. Or you're talking to a Christian. So there are certain things on which we agree. Like that there's a creator. Like that there's an order to, in, in the universe that came from the creator. That there's, the, the creator has a plan for the creation and the creator is unknowable. There's a lot of things that we agree on actually. So when you say to the exclusion of all others, I'm not sure that that's true. But at the end of the day, whether that's, you know, the, the, the responsibility falls on the individual to justify their beliefs. Nobody's saying it's true because I was born into it. They're saying, this is my idea of God. What's your idea? Okay, let's see what stands up to scrutiny. Because at the end of the day, there's one truth about God. Either he is, does exist or doesn't exist. Either he is a certain way or isn't a certain way. It doesn't matter what I think. doesn't matter what you think. doesn't matter what my religion teaches. I need to be able to evaluate the arguments and come up with a conclusion about what, is, what seems to be true to my mind. My starting point might be the way that I was raised. And for some people, the starting point is a lot worse. If you start in a totally pagan society, non-scientific society, primitive society that, does, that thinks everything works by magic and doesn't even know, um, the, doesn't even have the idea of laws of nature or anything like that, you're really at a huge disadvantage. If you see the sun rising in the morning as the Aztec god coming to feast on the sacrifices of human beings that you know, it's going to take from Mexico... Um, then you know, you're really at a disadvantage in terms of thinking rationally about the world. But once you're thinking rationally about the world, I'm not claiming that because I was born into it, it's true. I'm claiming that I can make an argument for why the idea is true and why any person would agree that it's true. And then we can find certain areas where, we, uh, where there's more room for disagreement. Um, like when it comes to beliefs in belief in God or ideas about God, I'm not, you know, you have to be able to justify and defend your position. Nobody's saying that you shouldn't have to do that. Nobody's saying you should accept my authority or anyone else's authority. I think it's, it's a flawed claim because they're assuming that all religious people just slavishly follow a certain authority and don't think and don't have any arguments and don't have any ability to engage in any kind of debate or hear other perspectives. Nobody ever, I've never heard anybody, well, I mean, you will hear dogmatists who say, well, this is what my holy book says and therefore I don't, there's no other way. There are people like that, but there's a lot of people who don't think that way and, uh, and, and are willing to hear other arguments and defend their positions. And then you evaluate the different positions and you determine what you think is closest to the truth. At the end of the day, we're all humans, so our ability to know ultimate truth is limited. But that's true of the atheist too. So what's the difference? Oh, that's a very nice thing. I wonder, personally, if I grew up in the slums of India, uh, with my pursuit of truth, 
led me to study, you know, Maimonidean philosophy. Didn't you say the bracha shelo asani goy every day? Didn't you say the bracha asher bacharbanu mikol ha'amim v'natanlanu atorato every day? That's why you said that. That's, yes, there are accidents of birth that are a huge advantage. And if you didn't grow up into a wealthy or you know, well-to-do uh, uh, community and family that was able to put you into private education and give you a yeshiva education and do all these things, you also wouldn't have uh, those things. And if you, you know, there, there are so many advantages that we have as a result of being Jewish, as a result of being you know, born into the communities that we were born into and having the benefits of that, that it's true of so many things. It's true of your material advantage also. Uh, when, when you, I, I'm not speaking about you personally, but when, when many of, let's say, the members of our community uh, buy their first home, their wealthy parents and grandparents help them get it. A person who was to- pulling themselves up by their bootstraps, as they say, wouldn't be able to afford a place like that, wouldn't be able to afford a neighborhood like that, wouldn't be able to afford a ca- uh, vacations or education or camp for their kids or all these things without coming from what that's what they call the privilege, you know, like white privilege, you know. There, there is a pri- there's a Persian privilege, there's a Jewish privilege, there's there's advantage, and in the and in the realm of education and and uh, look, Einstein and Freud both said, and I've mentioned it before, the the reason they came up with their discoveries was because they were Jewish. They they both said that they said we, we, it's because we were Jewish that we we learned to think out of the box. We weren't accepted into the mainstream, and we made our discoveries. And I, and I remember reading the biography of Einstein and he would talk to these other scientists and he'd be, uh, or Freud, they would talk, I read both of their biographies a couple of years ago, long biographies, but very interesting. And one of the common denominators is how they viewed the non-Jews as unable to understand certain ideas. They'd be like, oh, well, he's a goy. So he doesn't, you know, he doesn't, it's like, they're not even, they weren't religious, you know? But they would see that, they felt that a Jew could understand certain things that a non-Jew couldn't because they were outside of the mainstream and because they were, you know, and, and, and they had a tradition of not slavishly following authority in thought. They were independent thinkers. And, uh, and that was the, uh, that was thank God actually because the Nazis didn't, wouldn't use Jewish physics. They didn't come up with a nuclear bomb. That was, that was the whole thing. So uh, the, uh, there's an advantage that you say all those bachot thanking God that you're a descendant of Avraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov, and that's why you are in the position that you're in. But that's true of so many other things. Think of the people who don't know the world is round. There are people who don't know that there's such a thing as medicine. They're using voodoo. There are people who think that, you know, there are people who believe in, uh, go to astrology instead of going to a psychologist or, or, or a financial advisor or whatever they actually need. They go read books on astrology to find out what they should do. Those people are at a serious disadvantage. Okay, so there's all kinds of advantages and disadvantages that we inherit from our... Uh, from our, uh, you know, our community, from our family, and that's that's the way it's always going to be, and we're thank- that's why we're grateful for what we're given. All right. I didn't turn off the recording yet. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Okay. Bezar Hashem. Next week. Okay. Have a good week. Have a good night for you guys. Take care. Have a good morning. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks. Bye bye.